This week on the podcast, we're hosting a short series of Talking Health Tech episodes in partnership with the Digital Health CRC, where I'm speaking to the digital health leaders of tomorrow who are expressing their ideas, solutions and opinions from a basis of evidence. If you don't know, the Digital Health CRC invests in research and development to support the growth of a strong digital health industry, improve patient outcomes and experience, and deliver sustainable digital health solutions. The Digital Health CRC do a great job in education and capacity building in the sector as well, to support the next generation of emerging digital health leaders and deliver new and innovative learning opportunities for the sector. If you want to learn more about each of the people who appear in this episode, jump onto the Talent Hub section of the Digital Health CRC website. Each speaker that you'll hear in a second on this episode will share a short description of the work they're doing and why, followed by a brief conversation with me so we can learn more about the problem that they're solving. This is part two of the conversations I had with the emerging leaders, so make sure you jump back and check out the previous episode for all the other discussions that we've had in this mini-series, plus also subscribe to our audio podcast because there's an additional bonus episode that we've included on this topic as well. Here we go. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team HealthTech. Let's make it happen. This is Talking Health Tech with me, Peter Birch, featuring content and community about technology in healthcare. Between now and the end of June, we're conducting the 2024 Talking Health Tech audience survey. This helps us prioritize content, hone in key messages, and refine the show to make it even better. We also want to understand who the biggest cohorts of our audience are. So I'd love for you to take five or 10 minutes to have your say and complete the survey. Everyone who completes it goes in the draw to win a share of $1,000 worth of THT Plus membership credits to put towards a membership for yourself as an individual or to help get the word out about your company. The link to complete the survey is in the show notes of this episode or just go to talkinghealthtech.com slash survey. Hi, I'm Harvey. Today I'm going to talk about how we can improve the quality of healthcare by using data collected every day in hospitals. From the moment you walk into the hospital and register your details, your data is constantly being collected by hospitals for administrative purposes. Now there are a large amount of administrative data collecting dust in a hard drive somewhere, not being used. So what if we can use the data in such a way that is useful for healthcare practitioners to improve their practice? Now clinicians use data for feedback all the time in hospitals. One of the major issues in healthcare quality monitoring is that patients can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, meaning that there is a large variance of patients that come through each day. And because the measurements we generally use are outcome indicators, this means that generally, sicker patients have worse outcomes. Now, we don't want clinicians to be unfairly measured based on the patients that they treat. For example, if a doctor only treats healthy patients, their outcomes are going to be way better than a doctor that treats sicker patients. So the question becomes, how do we isolate variances solely due to clinical practice and not due to patient variances? So, my objective is to generate an algorithm that allows for standardized outcome measures so that clinicians can reflect and improve on their practice. Each patient becomes a valuable data point in guiding clinician practice, and outcomes are standardized for clinicians to have an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. More importantly, it is my hope that my research not only shows that outcome measures to clinicians, but to develop transparent algorithms that allow the clinicians to reflect on how and why patients have worse or better outcomes. Though it has been a long three-year journey in getting here, my preliminary results show significant progress in the way that we can use data that otherwise would be forgotten. My name's Harvey. Uh, I'm a third-year PhD student at Monash University. Um, I'm supervised by three supervisors. I'm Stella from the public health side. I got Dragon from the IT side, and I have an industry partner with uh, David 
uh, Rankin, who is a um, hospital director uh, of informatics at Cabrini. Yeah. Nice one. And tell me about the research you're doing. Yeah, my research focuses on using administrative data or um, emissions data to standardize outcome indicators or KPIs that are mostly used by clinicians nowadays to uh, reflect on their current practice. So you mentioned a few things there. There's administrative data yes. and there's outcome measures. Tell me, For those that don't know, tell me more about outcome measures, what that means. Right. Outcome measures generally means that... Um, so what outcome measures are is that clinicians tend to use outcome measures as a measure of how well their patients are doing. Mm. Outcome measures are such as you know how long a patient has been in hospital, uh, whether or not they had uh, an emergency readmission or an unintended readmission, or whether or not they had hospital-acquired complications. Um, generally, those are the things that you don't want, such as you know um, one would, could, would be infections um, yeah. in, in the hospital. Stuff that you could hopefully hospital. avoid. Yeah, stuff yeah. that you could avoid, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I imagine then you know those... Uh, outcome measures. That, that's there's a lot of variables or things that you that would depend on the the outcome, whether it's where the clinician's working, the demographics of the patients. Right? Am I kind of on the right track here? Yes, that's exactly what my uh, research focuses on. That was like, <laughs> yeah, it's um, the uh, so one of the things when you look at outcome measures is that there are so many things that can influence patient outcome. Mm. You know, we have clinicians who have their own practice and their own methods of practicing. Yeah. That's one of them. The uh, patient uh, that you're, you're treating could have a myriad of different diagnoses and diseases and the procedures that they go through. So my job then is to solely isolate what exactly can be attributed to the clinician by studying how do we um, group patients together in different risk factors. What does that mean? Risk them in di- uh, group them in different risk factors? What that means is that I'm seeking to find through the use of a large data set Ways that we can differentiate patients into maybe low, medium, or high-risk patients. Mm-hmm. So then, like, when doctors look at their, uh, let's say, their indicator, their outcome, uh, their KPIs, you can look at, oh, these patients should have a, um, they should be belonging to the hospital for, like, three days. And, okay, all my patients are, you know, within that, that range of three days, yeah. uh, three to four days. Like, they shouldn't be way too far ahead um, of, uh, they shouldn't be too long in the hospital. Yeah. yeah. I do that by a method known as risk adjustment. Mm -hmm. And that's the interesting part is I get to look at uh, all these different patient uh, data sets that come in and then like figure out what exactly is going on with with the procedures and the diagnosis. So um, what type of procedures they go through, what they diagnose with, and how these things attribute to the outcomes of the patient. So by isolating the diagnosis and the procedures, you then have uh, and figuring out... um, if a model patient comes in, like so, majority of the patients with this diagnosis and this procedure should fall under the range of two to three days length of stay. But what happens if I have a doctor that suddenly has a ten day um, a length, uh, they stay in the hospital for ten days rather than two to three, which is the expected uh, outcome? Um, then the feedback can be fed back to the clinician, allowing them to maybe think about what can they improve in the future and stuff like that. And this is the thing; it's kind of like. I would imagine that data then, it's the starting point of a conversation, whether it's, yes. might not necessarily be the clinician needs to do something better, but there's some, something is obviously outlying. Yes. What I find is interesting though, is it sounds like this is, you know, wouldn't it be handy if, but it also would not be handy if everyone was using the exact same system and filling out the exact same fields and then we've all got the same information that we can rely on. 
but we don't have that. And that's probably a good thing, but we could probably, and this is what we talk about interoperability and everything being thing. But if there's so, like, you know, this this minimum level that everyone's capturing this data already, uh, it sounds like then maybe if we can do something with what we've already yeah. got, we're getting all, like, it was almost like we're extracting more value from, from stuff that's already there. Yep. Um, one of the things that, because we in Australia, our hospitals are also, our healthcare systems are differentiated in private and public, and yeah. they all operate under different systems, different EMRs, um, electronic medical records mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Luckily for me, most hospitals have to collect a very specific minimum data set that they have to deliver to the gov- uh, to regulatory bodies, I'm pretty sure. That means that if I could use this data set, uh, it could be used to plug and play into almost any hospital in Australia. Yeah. Um, that's the beauty of using this. The um, challenges in using this is that because it is administrative data and is used for administrative purposes, the data may not be always, uh, it's highly variable. Yeah, and and that's that's the challenge in using data like this. Yeah. yeah, and then I think about then the 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 potential for this. What would you hope then? You know, after everything is said and done, what would be like the best use case for the for the work that you're doing? The idea here is um, the best use case would be let's say my model is accurate in um, producing in in giving good feedback to clinicians. Yeah. All the outcome indicators would be explained. Uh, so all the patient attributed um, factors to outcome uh, to the outcome would be explainable. So then the missing part would be up to the clinicians to have um, to think about, right? Yes. So by isolating, by explaining most of it or, or majority of why the patient uh, has this outcome, you then leave the practice side to the clinician and say that, okay, like this is why the, uh, the patient has this outcome. Um, it's expected that his outcome is within this range. Uh, within say, that, like, like back to the example before, a patient with, you know, who has kidney stones um, and went through some uh, a procedure, a collection of procedures, uh, should have a blank of stay on maybe two days. But somehow you, the patient's been here for four days. Is there a reason why? Mm-hmm. And when the clinician can reflect on that and think, oh, maybe, uh, and it's not necessarily pointing fingers or anything like that. It's simply to ask the clinician uh, to reflect on their practices and and think about, like, is there anything special about this patient or or yeah. is there something that you can do better next time? Well, that, that's this is the thing. What, what gets, what is it? What gets measured gets managed and, yeah. and, and everything's a collaborative approach. And, yeah. and, and I think I heard you say as well, it's, 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 giving a, an apples to apples comparison for this yes. kind of stuff. That we yes, it is giving an apples to apples comparison because one of the main things is if you don't adjust it properly, um, one of the things that do happen is that doctors who have, uh, who generally treat, uh, if let's say all the patients that you treat are healthy patients, their outcomes are going to be way better than a doctor who just treats, you know, riskier patients, uh, at risk patients or older patients. Um, then how do you compare these two uh, doctors um, or how do they compare to their peers? Uh, you would actually need to standardize them into some sort of form so that like, they could compare um, their results uh, side by side. Have you ever been unwell and needed to see a doctor? Well, you'll probably recall how frustrating it can be to book an appointment, with wait times sometimes stretching into months. Now think, you're patiently waiting for your appointment, but a person in front doesn't shop for theirs and doesn't cancel in advance. This is a missed appointment. Missed appointments? waste patient time, staff time, and healthcare resources. So what can we do about it? Through collaborations with healthcare providers, my research looks to identify the root causes of missed appointments. 
armed with those insights, we're exploring how we can harness the potential of digital solutions and develop tailored interventions that address those barriers head-on. The vision? A future where we have better appointment attendance, health service communication, and access to healthcare for when patients need it most. Hi, Peter. I'm Shema. Uh, and I'm a PhD student based at the Australian Centre for Health Services Innovation that sits within Queensland University of Technology. And my research, I guess if I was to frame it in one sentence, uh, it would be around being able to explore patient non-attendance and how we can harness the potential of digital solutions to reduce its impact on the health service and potentially also improve access to healthcare for patients. Cool. And so when we say non-attendance, because patients need to attend appointments to receive healthcare, so it's pe patients not showing up for appointments, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so it, essentially, the way we've been defining it um, in terms of the scope for the project, it's around the idea of patients who don't show up, essentially just not coming in to to see their doctor or their specialist, or in other words, in other cases, people who cancel a little too late, so maybe 20 minutes before mm. the appointment or within 24 hours, where there's potentially an a missed opportunity for other people to take up that vacant um, appointment slot. Yeah. Well, I guess when, when you first said that, you know, what the impact is of that, I guess my mind goes to a few places uh, from, from a clinician's perspective, it could be the financial implication of having an empty spot from a from a clinician that would otherwise be, I assume, booked out months in advance. And then, but there's probably other implications for other stakeholders too. Is this what you're exploring in your research? Yes. So we are looking at looking at it from the perspective of implications to healthcare providers, but also for our patients who are waiting for appointments. So as you already said, like for healthcare providers, one of the biggest things is having workflow disruptions. So if a clinician's waiting for a patient and they don't show up, there's a bit of that wasted time that uh, uh, clinicians will have to reallocate some of that time to do other activities and also potentially um, the additional administrative burden to be able to then get another patient in that slot. Mm -hmm. In terms of other stakeholders for patients, usually non-attendance contributes to lengthened waiting lists. So for most of us, we've probably experienced how long it takes from the point of trying to book an appointment, whether that's with a GP or with a specialist. Mm -hmm. It usually takes at least a month, especially with a specialist, to be able to see them. And if patient non-attendance usually disrupts that, and it often leads to lengthened waiting list, it also is potentially detrimental to some patients depending on what they're seeking healthcare for. Um, so being able to access healthcare a bit more efficiently and more sooner is often more beneficial for patients. Got it. So so there's there's a fair bit of the why there and the, and the unpacking a little bit more about uh, what you could be achieving. It's a very big deep dive into a topic like in terms of focusing your research around this. Like what types of activities are, are you doing or, or how are you kind of breaking this this concept down? I guess when we started, we weren't too sure what we were trying to do because patient non-attendance is not a new issue. It's existed in healthcare. So when I started, I think I had I was very optimistic, maybe a bit too optimistic of like maybe we could get it to a point where we could eradicate it. So it's like zero, zero percent, everyone shows up. But in the in reality, that's probably not achievable or feasible or viable. So we've moved away from that idea and trying to see if we can at least reduce 
the number. So say if there is one in every 10 patients or like five, 50% of patients don't show up, if we can get that down to maybe even 5%. Mm-hmm. So at least try and get more patients in the door or have people canceling in advance so that there's more people that can take up that slot. That's kind of where we're at. In terms of how we're approaching that, uh, we're going, so our project is in collaboration with Metro South Health. And we're starting off with a few different clinics within Metro South Health to try and see which clinics have a high number of non-attendants and potentially from that start off with one, understand why patients might not be showing up at that clinic and get the perspective of both staff and patients in regards to why that is. And then from that, try to understand perspective of both staff and patients in regards to what solutions might work. Because something that we know in research is what staff might say is an effective solution might not actually translate to what patients want. Uh, And so the goal is potentially to get a balance between the two perspectives Mm. and get a better understanding of we have this problem what is causing this problem? What can we do to make this problem, the reduce the impact of this problem? And what are the potential solutions that people are telling us that could be effective? Yeah. And then try and see and propose some, and use that information and kind of propose that to, to the health service of being like, well, this is what people are telling us that they want potentially, are any of these options a viable solution or can we test some of these things out yeah. um, to see? If you just took the perspective of one stakeholder, for example, from the clinician side or from the admin side, it's kind of like, well, you know, and I'm not saying they're saying this, but it's like, well, if only the patients understood how much of an impact it had, because then, you know, they don't show up, then the doctor's just going to be sitting there. But then from a patient side, they're kind of like, well, sure, but, you know, I got kids and they, and the the school changed the thing. And that like, everyone's got their own kind of sphere of stuff going on. So yeah, it's, it's a complicated one that, um, yeah, has they got to a point where, because I can't even think of like what would be implemented to try and like, because life happens, you know what I mean? Like, is there actually some viable solutions here that um, are starting to show light or is it still too early to see? So when we look at some of the evidence out there, we know that there are a couple of solutions that people have tried in other settings. We know that there is telehealth. A number of us are probably more mm-hmm. familiar with it following the pandemic where maybe a lot of our face-to-face appointments have transitioned to maybe telehealth. But there are also potential other ways of changing the way reminders are received to have a little bit more interactivity. So uh, a lot of us probably experienced the posted uh, posted appointment reminder that comes in that can sometimes, for a number of us, we probably don't see that. Uh, so it's trying to see, is, is there a better way? So it's one of the things we're looking at is, is there a better way for reminders to be received by patients? Or is there a better way of communicating um, appointment yeah. um, appointment information to patients. Some of the other solutions that we know exist is better booking process and a couple of those process changes or procedures and how we how we inform patients about appointments, how do we engage with our with patients or like how healthcare providers engage with with their patients. Um, so a couple of those type of solutions. So not of them not all of them are completely digital. But some of them have tidbits where there's implementation of a digital aspect to it to, to make it a hopefully more efficient, effective process. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, thinking about then the future here, say we, we you know, the, the research is done and some of these um, initiatives are implemented. What do you hope 
the outcomes will will produce uh, in in the particular setting that you're talking about, and potentially more broadly across the healthcare system. Probably, I, I would say the vision more generally is a couple of different things. If I had to summarize it in like three things, it would be hopefully better appointment attendance, and second is better communication between healthcare providers and patients, and the third being able to give patients the appointments they need when they need it most. But yeah, so like those are probably the three main things we're hoping. It it seems pretty broad at the moment, but I guess yeah, my project is a very small bit of trying to trying to solve a quite a big issue. But the hope is if we can stay, take maybe one step at a time towards improving healthcare, this is where my project hopefully sits. Yeah, that's the way. The Talking Health Tech podcast has evolved a lot over the years, all based on audience feedback. Now I need your help. Yes, you to shape the future of this show. Between now and the end of June, we're running our biggest campaign to date in order to understand what makes the global healthcare ecosystem tick. Last time we ran our Talking Health Tech audience survey, we learnt 40% of our audience are clinicians, 77% of our audience tune in for professional development and market awareness, 8% of people listen to Talking Health Tech for competitor profiling, and only 2% of people listen to the podcast to fall asleep. And this time around, I can't wait to find out about your preferences for audio versus video content, which topics we should dive into more, preferences for hosts and formats and geographical reach and so much more. And don't worry, we'll be sharing all the insights once all the responses are collected as well. So if you're a supporter of Talking Health Tech and you can spare five or 10 minutes, please complete our 2024 audience survey. And to say thanks for your input, everyone who completes the survey goes into the draw to win a share of $1,000 worth of credits towards THT Plus membership. Go to talkinghealthtech.com survey or the links in the show notes of this episode as well. Hi, I'm Nali Kulapani. I'm a researcher with the Swinburne University of Technology. I work on designing ways to make use of technology and data to improve the quality of healthcare. For instance, I do things like making it possible for doctors and nurses to use their smartphone in the hospital to make better clinical decisions. The Clots app is one great example for such a system. That is a smartphone-based clinical decision support system I have co-designed for a leading cancer hospital in Australia. A case study with that system showed that it helped in 79% relative risk reduction in certain complications in certain kinds of surgeries. That is a great indicator for how much of an impact digital health solutions can make. So I'm very excited to be contributing to this field as a technology and a process designer. My aim is to help design the best quality healthcare system in the future that would contribute to a healthy and a happy population. So, yep, I'm Nalika. I'm a researcher with the Swinburne University of Technology. Um, So I come from an engineering background, so I've been uh, working in electrical and electronics engineering. Then I moved into electromagnetic sensors. That was uh, my first uh, exposure into a research career. And then I moved into robotics. I've done a bit of machine learning. And then I've gone into another domain called uh, control engineering. And after that, I've touched uh, a sphere called digital health. Uh, which is uh, what I'm working on. 
So currently, I'm fairly engaged in uh, digital health. I'm working on multiple uh, projects in digital health. Uh, for example, I work on clinical edition support systems, uh, introducing digital health components into clinical edition support systems. I also work on the concept called digital twin. That is something that comes from the manufacturing industry. So I'm working towards introducing that concept to the healthcare sector as well. Uh, I also uh, work on other aspects such as uh, web-based solutions, mobile applications, and stuff. So I've touched uh, uh, things like uh, helping out uh, dementia family carers uh, through a web-based solution. And also in terms of uh, clinical edition support systems and mobile uh, apps, I have worked on something called uh, Clotsap. So that's kind of like a smartphone-based clinical edition support system. So that would be a very um, interesting topic to talk about today. Yeah, look, a wide breadth of, of experience across industries and now into digital health. And the, the CLOTS app you mentioned there, is, is that the area that you're doing your research in now? Yes, so that is uh, the main component of my, my current uh, research uh, involvement. Mm. So what we're doing there is uh, we partnered with a, a leading uh, cancer hospital in Australia. So the idea of uh, that clinical edition support system comes from a leading clinician uh, in our cancer hospital. So it came uh, as a smartphone app. So she basically is a very um, senior clinician. And uh, about 10 years ago, I think it started in like 2013, she's a senior clinician and she works with a lot of students. Uh, so she basically had the issue of uh, junior clinicians uh, hassling her a lot, giving her phone calls, talking to her, asking questions, um, a lot of uh, the stuff related to um, clinical practice. So she's an expert in the field. So she had the idea of why not I develop a smartphone app, including all this um, clinical knowledge so that it'll be helpful to everybody else and uh, she would have more of her time so she wouldn't have to answer the phone calls and, and she'd have basically more time and freedom yeah. and she can use that time for all sorts of other things. So that's how it was developed uh, way back in 2013. So she is a doctor uh, and uh, what the weakness of her was she is not into technology. She didn't know how to develop a mobile app. So she got engaged with a uh, smartphone app developer so that's where the version one of this app came in. So they've um, developed that and uh, it has been used uh, up to about, uh, I think 2018, and they've done kind of like a very nice observational study. And they've uh, seen quite uh, a good improvement of patient outcomes as well surrounding all the clinical activities uh, that are involved with this uh, smartphone-based clinical edition support system. And that's where Digital Health CRC and I got involved in it because she wanted to take it a step further. She wanted to kind of uh, get some formality into this smartphone app to get it assessed, uh, get it validated, probably get it TGA approved if possible. And her bigger picture was uh, getting uh, commercialized. So that's where I came in. Uh, and I'm with the Sunburn University. So we have a whole research team uh, led by Professor Nilmini Vikramasinghe. So she's a very um, senior clinician, uh, not, not a clinician, she's a, she's a professor. So she's, she's an expert in digital health, but not a, not a, not a medical doctor. So she's uh, leading our team. Uh, so that's how we came into it, to take uh, that smartphone app, validate it further, and taking it uh, towards the commercialization. So that's where my research contribution comes into play. That's such an interesting area. Like that's a, such an important area of, yes, you've got this idea and something that's, 
demonstrating some some good product market fit, but you know, adding that muscle behind it and the and the the credible validation piece is something that a lot of technology solutions struggle with. Tell me a little bit more about what that validation process looks like. Yeah, so it it came to us as an already developed smartphone app. Mm. So what uh, we saw was like, okay, so we have the smartphone app. So the first question we asked was, where's the clinical knowledge? Where is this coming from? So that information was missing. So basically, the the knowledge came from a very um, senior clinician. So that was her knowledge base. Uh, But we needed some formality. What we really saw as the opportunity was to get that formality behind this app and then develop it as a product that could go towards TGA approval. Uh, because that in Australia gives you uh, more formality um, towards a solution like this. And then look at market opportunities um, going beyond that. Why not, if we can make it a, a, a gold standard in Australia or even worldwide, that would be great. So that's kind of our ambition. Yeah. So what we wanted to do was starting from the smartphone app, getting the formality behind it and take it towards that uh, validation stage or getting it approved. So the way we started it was uh, we asked for that clinical knowledge. So basically, uh, she gave us a bunch of papers. She told, okay, this is where this this knowledge is is published. So it's all like established peer-reviewed clinical knowledge. So we we collected that knowledge base. And then what we did was, um, so we have a smartphone app and we have a clinical knowledge base. So there's a big gap between there because you can't give a bunch of papers to a smartphone app developer to write a code on. Mm. So what we did was, like, I'm an engineer. So um, I saw this nice little synergy between clinical knowledge and software development. Uh, We use algorithms and flowcharts, data structures, and all that. So I took that data structure algorithm background, and I kind of converted all this clinical knowledge into a bunch of flowcharts. So then if you look at a flowchart, then that's much more um, kind of convenient uh, to a uh, software developer mm. to write a code on. They so, know that language, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we did that translation from a bunch of papers into a bunch of flowcharts. So that was our second step, this, this, this translation. And then uh, what we did was like uh, the app as we had was just a, um, uh, a standalone uh, tool. Like that, there was no data backend. It wasn't collecting any data, and it wasn't connected to any database. So it was all coded in the app. So what we did was we saw the opportunity of uh, synergizing uh, data. We started coding a backend for this app. So that means we wanted the the clinical guidelines or the or the recommendations given by this uh, clinical decision support system to sit in a database and not in the app. And we also wanted to track the usage of the clinicians, like what time of day they're logging in and what decision pathways they're they're taking. So we wanted to collect that information. Not that it it really makes sense at this stage, but we saw that opportunity because data is is really valuable at this stage and that's that's the future basically. So we saw that opportunity. So we started coding a backend for this um, standalone app. So that was a big improvement uh, from version one to coming into version two. So after that, we developed the new version of the app with the data backend. And now we are at the stage of uh, pitching it towards uh, TGA approval. So we have uh, the vision that it might be uh, TGA exempt because this is kind of, uh, it, there, there are different ways TGA kind of classifies different devices. We hope uh, this might be an exempt device, but we have to go through that assessment process to actually validate 
that decision. Because if it's exempt, then um, it, it, it makes it much easier and less stringent for commercialization. So that's what we're hoping for, yeah. but we have to go through that process. So we're currently at that stage of validating that and uh, checking it against the TGA guidelines mm -hmm. on what kind of a device this is. Uh, is it just a decision guiding tool or is it a formal decision support system? Does it fall under a medical device, which I don't think it does. That's where we're at currently. So the future is go through the um, validation process and then um, get it uh, commercialized at a later stage. So it's like a long process. Yeah. We've added that structured and sequential nature to this to get that formality in yeah. uh, this uh, it's, it's CDSS, yeah, clinical condition yeah, support system. It's interesting, isn't it, when you've got all of this stuff to do even before you get to that stage of selling the yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But that's important and yeah. uh, getting that foundation right at something that can often be overlooked. I guess then that's then, you know, the exciting future about this, right? What are you most excited about in terms of once we get through this validation and and commercialization, get it out there into the hands of clinicians and dealing with patients? What's, what's the future here? One of the most important things is like, um, they've done an observational study from 2013 to 2018, basically the initial phase of it. So I was impressed about the results they've seen. So they've done an observational study where, where some clinicians use this um, smartphone app or the clinical edition support system versus, versus some others who don't use it. So they've seen like great improvement in clinical outcomes of patients among the group uh, of clinicians who have uh, been using this uh, smartphone app. So that's a really interesting observation to see. Uh, it was like, it wasn't a new drug. It wasn't a um, new treatment. Yeah. It was just like um, having a smartphone in your hand so that the clinicians would have the possibility to look into and kind of verify the things they, they try to do. So kind of like having that guidance or support for decision-making has had immense benefits to patients. So that's very encouraging to see. Yeah. So I think um, that's that's the best thing uh, about digital health because like it's not all about kind of you know like new treatments, new drugs, pharmaceuticals, or anything like that. Clever use of technology, data, um, and internet, and and other things. Like if you kind of do a small thing, like if you change a small thing in clinical workflows, that might have immense uh, improvements in health outcomes. It could work the other way as well if you make the wrong decision to change your clinical workflow to give you wrong outcomes, but you can do it certainly better. I mean, like you can kind of introduce new technologies, make little tweaks to the clinical workflows, introduce little technologies, and it is really impressive to see these um, positive outcomes, the patient outcomes improving. So I think like in future, uh, in Australia, I mean like the healthcare sector is fairly advanced. I think we're, we're at a phase, we're heading towards uh, the concept called smart hospital, that means internet of things enabled in the hospital. The data about patients will be tracked much more rigorously. Uh, obviously there will be privacy concerns because hospitals are obviously targets of cyber attacks. So that aspect of the thing um, has to be taken care of. But uh, we're at a really exciting time where we are heading towards the concept of smart hospital. So, and digital health is booming uh, at this time post-COVID. So, yeah, it's a really exciting time to be in this uh, field. And uh, I'm looking forward to see uh, what this field has to offer. 
Current questionnaires measuring mental health in the general public mainly focus on measuring mental ill health, such as anxiety, depression, and stress. They often overlook measures of mental well-being. This is like working on a jigsaw puzzle with missing pieces. We are on a quest to identify the missing pieces of this puzzle, recognizing both mental ill health and well-being. This more holistic approach will enable us to develop a digital self-report survey of mental health that can be integrated into the existing health stations of our industrial partner, Sisu Health. To identify the missing pieces of this puzzle, we first collect existing questions that measure mental health and well-being. Then we optimize them and examine common patterns that emerge. We hope the final result is a self-serve survey that the public will enjoy, generating a self-monitoring tool that we want to use repeatedly. So far, we have developed a prototype tool that captures meaningful facets of overall mental health in the general public. The research is continuing to refine this tool. Uh, my name is Jiao. Uh, I'm, in my previous career, I was a developer, software developer working in Melbourne for more than 10 years. So I'm currently in a career transitioning from IT to um, psychology and mental health. So I came across um, this uh, excellent, oh, amazing opportunity uh, with the DHCRC, Digital Health CRC program, where I can combine, um, I guess, my previous skill sets uh, in IT and also look into an area such as a mental health, an area that I'm currently quite passionate about. Mm. So that's where how I um, sort of um, engage in this program. So what my research about, I guess, um, is uh, to develop a digital self-report um, mental health survey for our industrial partner. So I'm not sure whether you come across something, um, my industrial partner called Sisu Health, they have um, quite a number of um, health stations all around Australia, especially in Priceline. What um, this project is about is to uh, develop a mental health survey in a digital format on their station so that can be used by um, you know, the general public in Australia. Yeah, got it. I think I've seen those health stations. Where, so you, it's kind of like a... a sp tell me about the health stations. What yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the industrial partner, CISU Health, probably can tell you more about it. Sure. But, but um, in just in the GIST, um, I guess um, currently they are measuring your um, physical health indicators such as the mm. blood pressure. So when you got onto a station, uh, it just requires four minutes of your time. So you measure your um, blood pressure, me measuring your weight, BMI, and then from there they can recommend certain um, health recommendations and see how you're going. And it only takes four minutes of your time. So, you know, if you go into Priceline, trying to purchase something from Priceline or pharmacies, then, you know, you can just hop onto the station and try it Wait out. Wait for your script. Yeah, yeah, you <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. And that's interesting. So then incorporating uh, mental health. Yeah, that's right. So at the moment, they are measuring um, stress at the moment, just stress, but um, they would like uh, mental health um, instruments that are more broad. Yes. Um, yeah, that's where my project comes about. Speaking of broad but, but and, and mental health, mm. There's a lot to unpack there in terms of what, what, what we're talking about here in, in mental health. Can we go into a bit more specific? Yeah, I think don't get me started on this mental health thing. <laughs> right. We're going to get you started. Let's do this. <laughs> because um, when I started my PhD, I think this is one of the, um, I guess, questions that I'm asking. What is the mental health of the general public looks like? Right. Because um, according to the latest national survey of mental health and well-being, um, I think it's between 2020 to 2021, so roughly about 20% of Australians have diagnosed diagnosis of mental disorders, but there are 80% of Australians are either at risk or not mentally ill. My question is, what about um, how is their mental health of this 80% looks like? 
So are they, you know, enjoying their life or are they, or how do I quantify this mental health? So that led, led me down to, um, I guess, um, a quest to look into what exactly the research out there about mental health. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, um, what I found about the definition of mental health is quite different from the general perception of mental health, which is us- usually has, has a negative um, connotations like directly related to mental illness or um, in some way or form referring to uh, the mental health support services, yeah. which is not um, what I thought it was. So, so in literature, in research, um, the researcher defined mental health as more um, broader. It, it's not directly related to mental illness as such, but more like how you live um, your life in a positive way can be uh, functioning in a more positive way, more related to mental well-being rather than mental illness. Yeah. So if I understood correctly, then, you know, th- there's 80% of people, that th- there's a large majority of people, like 80% of people who don't necessarily have a diagnosis for a mental illness necessarily that's correct yeah but that's still a large amount so so by definition there's a large amount of people there that doesn't that doesn't just give everyone a green tick and say yeah that's right yeah yeah that's right that's right and i'm I'm thinking you just highlighted one very important concept that a lot of time we view this like a bipolar type of um, Mm. concept where without mental illness it doesn't necessarily mean that you are mentally healthy right because this is not just one dimension Uh, in fact there are multiple dimensions which related back to um, this project where we are trying to tease out what exactly are the major components they are meaningful to someone in australia about their mental health Mm. interesting and so there's a role for technology to play in it um, yes, yeah, de- definitely. Um, our CISO Health, um, as uh, I introduced um, earlier, they have all these health stations all around um, Australia. Obviously, this is one of the digital product and platform that we can, I guess, harness. So normally when we think about a survey, people think about oh, a lot of questions to answer, you know, have to answer how you feel, 10 or 20 questions. And furthermore, our project are looking at broader than just mental illness. So one side effect is there'll be a lot more questions you know, instead of just 10 questions. So how do we kind of provide a better experience for the general public? So we, we are going to, to harness this technology or and the industrial partner platform so that we could make potentially make the um, questions items more dynamic so we don't have to serve, serve up like 20 questions all the time. So we can make it such that it, it is, you know, depends on how you answer in the first two questions, then we can tailor the questions in the third or fourth and potentially shorter than 20 questions. So yeah, this is yeah. sort of our vision. A bit more complex than which smiley face looks like you right now. No, so But that's a really exciting potential there because, you know, one challenge that I imagine many technology providers might face or anyone trying to, to tackle this issue of mental health of the population. You, you've got to reach that population. And I guess if there are already an, an existing group of, of um, the, these health stations out there that are, that are in the general public, yeah. you've got this potential to at least capture the data um, and, and, and assist and, and present these, this survey to the, uh, to the public, then that hopefully then will give you an opportunity to have some, some meaningful impact. Yeah, definitely. I think um, having um, an industry partner collaborating uh, in this project makes, I guess, whatever um, I find out in our research more, 
uh, if you like, use the word that translate to the practical impact to yeah. people's health. And not just that, I think because um, um, our industrial partner platform, the health station has quite a wide reach, as you say. So um, we can just, um, I guess, just harness this capability to deliver impact, I hope. Yeah. Mm. Hey, before you go, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and you enjoyed this show, write a nice review and give us five stars in your favorite podcast player. At the time of this recording, we've been stuck on 65 reviews on Apple. I'm not sure what that's about, but if this show's part of your regular routine and you've listened this far, it'd mean the world to me if you could take two minutes and write a nice review, give us five stars. It does more than just boost my ego. It also helps us climb the charts and reach more people. Thanks so much. For more content and community about technology and healthcare, visit talkinghealthtech.com.